Well, this is the Thanksgiving week, and I don't know how it is with you. We all have favorite days of the year, and I'll just tell you, Thanksgiving has always been my favorite day of the year. Now, it's not as important as Christmas and Easter. Those are the two most important days of the year, but there's something about Thanksgiving. It's less commercialized. It seems to be a slower pace. It's just, it's a relaxing day. We get Thursday and Friday off. So if we can work through Wednesday, we get two days off. And it's just, there's just something about Thanksgiving I like. Now, there are a lot of reasons that I like Thanksgiving. Those are some of the reasons. But the main reason that I like Thanksgiving is because we have so many things for which to be thankful. An amen would have sounded really good right there. Let me back that car up and drive it. One of the reasons I really like Thanksgiving is because we have so many things for which to be thankful. Amen. We do. Now, I don't know how it is with you, but when I wake up in the morning, I did it today, I have a mental list of things and people that I am thankful for. And before I get out of, before, just while I'm still kind of getting, coming to, stretching, getting the little googlies out of my eyes, I say, God, I thank you for this, this, and this. The first two things on my list, I say, God, I thank you that I'm saved. And God, I thank you that I know that I'm saved. Now, today, no matter what you may be going through in life, maybe your heartbreaking time, maybe a challenging time, maybe a painful time, or who knows what you might be going through in life. But when you woke up this morning, if you could say, God, I thank you that I'm saved, and I thank you that I know that I'm saved, you have quite a bit to be thankful for. Now, I'm just curious, how many of you here today whether you said that or not, you could have said that. Just raise your hand. You could say, God, I thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that I know that I'm saved. That's, that's, that's a lot of people. That's the majority of the people in this room today. Now, here's my question to those of you who just raised your hand. How do you know you're saved? You say, well, John, I know I'm saved because I have asked God to forgive me of my sins. I have turned from those sins. I've asked Christ to come into my life. I have trusted him to save me. And for that reason, I know that I'm saved. And I would say to you, exactly. That's the only way anybody can be saved is by doing those things. That's how I got saved. But let me ask you this question. How did you know to do that? How did you know to repent of your sins? How did you know to ask Jesus to come into your heart? How did you know to transfer your faith from you to the Lord Jesus Christ? How did you know to do that? I'll tell you how you knew. Somebody told you that. Maybe a parent, a grandparent, a pastor, a teacher, a friend, a spouse, a child. If you're saved today, somebody told you how to be saved. Now, Think about this. Just use your logic. If God used another person to help you get saved, doesn't it make sense that God would want to use you so that somebody else can get saved? You see, when it comes to the salvation of human beings, God is not sending angels out of heaven telling us how to be saved. God's not sending Peter and James and John out of heaven. Telling, no, God is using those of us who are still living on the earth to tell other people how to be saved. And so today, I want us to think about the importance of sharing our faith with others, the importance of being, and this is going to be our word for the day. Chris had the line of the day, but this is the word of the day, soul winner. Now, that may be a new word to you, the word soul winner, but it's what we're going to be thinking about today, and I'll show you where that word comes from. So if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter number 11, and we're looking at some of these great Proverbs on Sunday. If you've not picked up one of these booklets, we've given away over 4,000 in the last three weeks, and if you've not gotten one, or maybe you want to give one to a friend, they're in the commons when you go out today. But one of the greatest verses in Proverbs is in chapter number 11 and in verse number 30. 
And I'm reading it out of the New King James, and I looked at a lot of different translations. Most of the translations say it differently. To be quite honest with you, there was one or two translations I looked at, and they're good translations. I just didn't, I couldn't understand what the verse meant, but you can understand it clearly here. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, here's our phrase. And he who wins souls is wise. I just want you to hear that. He who wins souls is wise. Or it could say she. It's not talking about masculine or feminine. It's just talking about people. People who win souls are wise. Can we say that together? People who win souls are wise. Now, here's the question. What does it mean to win souls? I mean, that is kind of a new way or a different way. Not new. It's been in the Bible thousands of years, but it's a different way of saying it. What does it mean to win souls? Well, Put your bulletin in Proverbs chapter 11 and turn back to the book of 1 Kings chapter 16 because I want to show you an interesting passage here that sheds tremendous insight on what it means to win souls. In 1 Samuel 16, we read that God had rejected Saul as being king of Israel. Saul was Israel's first king, but he had been impatient, impulsive, disobedient, unfaithful to God, and God rejected him. And so God said, I'm going to raise up a new king to replace Saul. And so God spoke to his prophet Samuel and God said, Samuel, what I want you to do, I want you to go to the city of Bethlehem. And when you get to Bethlehem, find a man named Jesse. And Jesse has lots of sons, but one of his sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Jesse went to Bethlehem and I'm sorry, Samuel went to Bethlehem and he met Jesse introduced himself. And he said, Jesse, we need to have a dinner, kind of like a sacrifice. We'll offer up praise to God, but I need you to bring your sons to me so that I can meet them because one of them is going to be the next king. And so we read, for example, in verse number six, first Samuel 16, verse six. So it was when they came, now they're all at this dinner that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And so Samuel thought Eliab, probably the firstborn, and he thought this is going to be the next king of Israel. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, for I have refused or rejected him. Look at this next sentence, one of the great lines in all the Old Testament. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Eliab has not been chosen to be the next king. Verse eight, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass before. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Now think about this. Put yourself in Jesse's shoes. He has brought out his seven oldest sons in order of age probably. And they've all been rejected from being the king. Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then Jesse answered, there remains yet the youngest. In other words, I have one other son. He's not with this group. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Now, look at the end of verse 11. Now, different translations going to read it differently. New King James, very clear on this one. The last sentence of verse 11, we will not sit, I'm sorry, 
the, uh, yeah, the last sentence. Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. That word bring there in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, is from the same Hebrew word that the word win comes from. He who wins souls is wise. It's the Hebrew word, we would spell it L-A-Q-A-C-H, lakak. He who wins souls, he who lakak souls in 1 Samuel. We're not gonna sit down until you bring him, until you lakak him in. And so think about this. I, I'll show you this story to make a good point. David is out there in the fields taking care of the sheep. Samuel's trying to figure out who God has chosen to be the next king of Israel. He says, Jesse, do you have any more sons? Have one more out there in the field. There he is. It's David. He's, he's keeping the sheep. And, and Samuel says, send and bring him in. Lecoq, bring him in. In other words, go send somebody, not you, Jesse. I'm not telling you as the father to go do that, but send one of your representatives. Send somebody who works for you. Send somebody out into the fields to bring David in. And so when we read that phrase, he who wins souls is wise, if we can understand that word lecoq, it literally means to bring or to fetch. In other words, winning souls is all about going to where unsaved people are and bringing them to Jesus Christ, fetching them and bringing them to Jesus Christ. That's how you got saved. That's how I got saved. I had people in my life who came to me where I was, explained to me how to be saved, and then brought me to Jesus Christ. And so what is a soul winner? It is someone who goes out into the fields where the people are, who goes out into the community where the people are, and with their life and with their words, says things about Jesus and explains one way or the other, fully or partially, about what it means to be a Christian and how they can be saved. But then that person brings this person to the church so they can hear the full explanation of how to be saved. Or maybe they bring them, they give the full explanation and they bring that person to Jesus Christ themselves and that person gets saved. Now, God has called us to be soul winners. And if we're living right with God, we're going to be a soul winner. Now, I want to do in this message something that I think God will bless. He blessed it in the first service, and I hope he'll bless it here. I want to give you four reasons why we should be soul winners. And as I was preparing this sermon on Monday, I thought, well, I want to talk for a while about why we should be soul winners, and then I want to talk for a while about how we should be soul winners. And then yesterday afternoon when I got working on it again, it just became clear to me that that's far too much material. And so Today, we're going to talk about why we should be soul winners, and next week, how to be soul winners, because I want to develop both of these and not have to rush through it. Why should we be soul winners? First of all, we should be soul winners. That is, we should go out into the fields where the people are, into the schools, into the plants, into the malls, into the stores, into the neighborhoods, into the businesses, into the family get-togethers on Thanksgiving. We go to where the people are. And with our lives, hopefully radiating the love of God and the, the peace of God and the joy of God, and with our words as God would lead us, we endeavor to bring people to Jesus Christ. Now, why should we do that? Reason number one, because God told us to. It's one of those things we're supposed to just do because God said do it. 
in Matthew chapter 28, before he went back to heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Notice, you have to go to where they are. And then you tell them how to be saved and you bring them to Jesus. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, before he went to heaven, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses here in Jerusalem, the broader area of Judea, the broader area of Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. That's what you're supposed to do. And he said, power is going to come on you to do that. So one of the reasons that we're supposed to be soul winners is just because something God told us to do. Why did you come to church today? Did you come to church today because you got up and wanted to come to church? Well, hopefully we did. But whether we felt that way or not, you're supposed to come to church because God said go to church on Sunday, right? Don't forsake the assembly of the saints. Those of us who tithe and, you know, to hear my dad give that harvest day report, it's just unbelievable as you compare this harvest day on the back end of a pandemic to other harvest days where we even had more people coming at that time. We've never received more envelopes than that. And the church has never received anywhere near that kind of money. In fact, if you average up all the harvest days from previous years, I haven't done this, but I've looked at, I've done it in my mind. If you average all that up, this year's harvest day was roughly twice what the average would have been for all these other years. Now, how do you figure that? Well, there's only one way to figure it. There's many people here, the overwhelming majority of people here have read in the Bible that we're supposed to give our tithes to God, 10% of whatever we make, and we're supposed to give him at times extra offerings. And we've read that. We said, God said this is what I'm supposed to do. He said, he'll bless me if I do it, and I'm gonna do it. So we read these commands in the Bible. Don't murder. Well, I think most of us, hopefully all of us, uh, take that command seriously. Don't commit adultery. Hopefully all of us take that command seriously. That's serious business with God. He wants us to stay away from those type things. Honor your parents. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't lie. We read all these commands and we say, God, I want to take that seriously. Well, the command to be a soul winner is no different from these other commands. It is something that God has told us to do and he expects us to do it. I'll take it one step further. If we are in a right relationship with God, we will regularly be doing everything we can. We can't guarantee that anybody's going to get saved, but we will be doing everything we can to bring people to Jesus Christ. Andrew Murray, a a great Christian who lived a long time ago, he said it even stronger than that. He said there are two categories of Christians. Now, I want you to think about this, because when I read this years ago or heard it, it convicted me. It still convicts me now. He said there are two categories of Christians. There are soul winners and there are backsliders. In other words, there are people who are walking with God, obeying the commandments of God, and as a result, they're bringing people to Jesus, and there are other people who are not. Now, I want to just pause here and ask you this question. When is the last time, I have to ask myself this question, that you went out into the fields where the people were and actually brought somebody to Jesus Christ and led them to pray and receive Christ as Savior and Lord. When's the last time you did that? Last week, I asked this question. When is the last time in one of our services here, you have gone back behind these doors, up a set of stairs, down a hall, into the baptistry area, and stood over there on the side while somebody whom you went out into the fields and brought to Jesus and led to the Lord, and they were following Jesus now in their baptism, and you have stood over there, and you're watching them be baptized. When is the last time you've done that? 
How long's it been since you've been in the baptistry area with somebody that you've led to Christ? And I think that's a convicting question for you, and it's certainly a convicting question for, uh, question for me. What God is saying is, just like I don't want you to commit adultery, I don't want you to go out there killing people. I don't want you lying. I don't want you losing your temper. I do want you to tithe. I do want you to go to church. God says, Get, be clear on this. I want you and I expect you to be a soul winner. And part of being an obedient Christian is doing what God has told us to do. And so the first reason that we should be soul winners is because God told us to be. Now, the second reason that we should be a soul winner is because we can't help but be a soul winner. Think about this. If you've been saved, that means that Jesus Christ has changed your life. Not just that he forgave you and saved you, now you're going to heaven. If you've truly been saved, he's changed you from the inside out. You have a peace you never knew before. You have a joy that you had never experienced. You have an enthusiasm for life and a love for people beyond anything you've ever known. And so if you've been saved, if I've been saved, how could I keep that in? Let me give you a verse to write down. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16. Paul said, he said it this way, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, how could I, Paul was saying, whose life has been changed by the grace of God. How could I keep that silent? How could I keep from sharing? So think about this. Why should we be soul winners? Because we can't help but be. I mean, if we go to a good restaurant and have a good meal and have a great experience and, and really like that, isn't it just natural that we would tell our friends about it? If I go to Jimmy Changa's and order the chicken enchilada dinner, no poblano sauce, no grated cheese, chili con carne, black beans, all green sauce, rice. If I go up there and order that and have a good experience, won't I naturally tell you about that? Didn't I just naturally tell you about that? Shouldn't I end this sermon so we can all go there now and experience that? I love their food, the chicken enchilada dinner. So I have it. If I'm talking to you about a good meal, I share it's natural. I don't have to rehearse it or practice it. Now, what is it I order? I know what I order. What is it I like? I know it. So if we've been saved, it should just be like bubbling out of us. Here's what God has done for me. A third reason that we should be so winners is because people need the Lord. Now, last week we were talking about a vision of reaching all these people in our community uh, for the Lord. And I want to talk about that in just a moment later. But I, I want to say some things today at this point on behalf of the tens of thousands of people in our community who currently do not know the Lord and are not involved in any church in the area. Tens of thousands of them. And some of us have been so, saved so long, we have forgotten what it's like to be unsaved. Or some of us, if you got saved young, thank God for that. Not only did you get saved from, from hell, you know, but you got saved from a lot of things that could have been problematic later on. But some of us have been saved so long, we, don't, we have forgotten what it's like to be unsaved. So here's what it's like to be unsaved, quickly. Number one, unsaved people, according to the Bible, have no peace. There's no peace, the Bible says, for the unsaved. No peace. Now, that doesn't mean they never have a good day. That doesn't mean they don't have a good time. That doesn't mean they don't have any excitement in their life, but it means they have no peace. Many of the people today who are unsaved in our communities, they're going to have a fairly fun day. They're up right now. They've been watching the pregame show. They had a late breakfast. They're fixing to watch their foot, the first football game. They're with friends. They'll watch the late game, and then they'll watch the night game. They'll watch many, there'll be many 
thousands of people today watch all three of the games. Maybe their friends were over. Maybe they'll eat some good food. Maybe they'll have some drinks. We hope they have good drinks, right? Not bad drinks, but good drinks. But they're going to have people over today and they're going to be having a good time. But do you know tonight about 10 o'clock, 1030, that last game's going to end. Their friends are going home. Their family members are going to bed. They're going to click that remote control off and they're going to get back in the same bed that they woke up in this morning and look up at that same ceiling and they're going to think, well, you know, today was a pretty fun day. Watch games, had friends, family, food, all these things going on. I didn't have any peace when I woke up and I don't have any peace now. And what I'm saying, I'm like appealing to us on their behalf. They may not process that. They They may not be thinking, I don't have any peace, but they know they don't have any peace. I'll tell you something else unsaved people don't have. They have no hope, no hope. Ephesians 2.12 describes unsaved people this way. People are without hope and without God in this world. Now, those of us who are saved, we have heartbreaking experiences we go through, but we have hope. We can look out into the future and we can look at eternity and say, you know what? One day we're going to be reunited with our loved ones. One day we're going to be in heaven. We have hope. Friend, I'm telling you, a person who is unsaved, has absolutely no hope when they think about life beyond the grave. Have you ever been, and maybe you never have, but have you ever been to a cemetery where the person who died was unsaved and most all of the family was unsaved, and as you're out there at this cemetery service, like me as a minister conducting the service, you say to yourself, I'm one of the few saved people here. Have you ever seen how unsaved people express their hopelessness at a cemetery. Well, I'm telling you, I have. I've been to a cemetery and tried to preside over the the graveside service for somebody who was unsaved and their family is unsaved. And I'm telling you, there is a hopelessness. There's weeping, there's wailing. And I've heard them say to their loved one, I will never see you again. And they have no hope. And that's what the scripture says for those who are unsaved. No hope and without God in this world. Now, those of us who've been saved, we've been to the cemetery with our family members. We've been to the cemetery with our friends. We have cried. We have wept. Our hearts have been heavy. But in the midst of all that, we have hope that he was saved, that she was saved. We know that we're saved and we have a promise that one day we'll see them again in heaven. But people who are not saved don't have that. They're without hope. And I'm, I'm appealing to you today on their behalf. God has called and commissioned and equipped us to go out into the fields, out into the plants, out into the schools, and to find these people who have no hope, find these who have no peace, and to bring them to Jesus and to win them to Christ so that we can be soul winners and that they can be saved. Now, think about this. If the Bible says he who wins souls is wise, we believe we know that's true because the Bible is true, right? Well, if that's true, the opposite has to be true. He who doesn't win souls is foolish. That's why Andrew Murray said there are two categories of Christians, soul winners and and, and, uh, backsliders. He who wins souls is wise. He who fails to win souls is foolish. And I'll tell you something else about unsaved people. Not only do they have no peace and no hope, they have an empty place in their heart. Augustine said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. Now we can identify with this. We remember before we got saved, something was missing. Something's not quite right. Something, I'm just missing something. Sometimes we try to fill that up in relationships or in money or hobbies, whatever, but nothing will fill that. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless. They're empty. 
till we find our rest in you. And I'm saying God has commanded us and given us an opportunity here to go out into the fields and to bring them to Jesus. Why should we win souls? Because people need the Lord. But there's a fourth and final reason why we should win souls. Think about this. Because death is certain and where a person spends eternity matters. Death is certain. I mean, friend, if Jesus doesn't come in our lifetime at the rapture of the church, mark this down. You will die. I will die. It's not maybe, could happen, no, it's going to happen. It's been appointed a man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And so we have an appointment with God. Death is certain, and where we spend eternity matters. You know, I was thinking about eternity, and we know eternity is forever. I mean, let me just make, say it this way. I thought of it this way, and I thought, well, that, that doesn't even, that's silly to say it that way. It's the understatement of all understatements. Eternity lasts for a long time, right? It lasts forever. I mean, it, it never ends. And so why last week were we out here sharing a vision to try and pray to God to give us 10%, 50, uh, 10% of our community, 15,000 people in first, at First Baptist every Sunday? Why, why would that be a vision? Why would that be something God has put in our heart? And that is like a 20-year plan. I mean, like that's the rest of our lives trying to do our part in that. Why? Is it so we can say, oh, wow, there's 15,000 people here? No. Let me ask you, that, that would just be pride. Look how many we got. That would be arrogance. God wouldn't even bless that. And I'll tell you something else. God is so turned off by pride. First of all, to God, 15,000 people is not even a lot of people. You know, sometimes you'll hear people talking about their church. We had so many people in our church, and they're, like, they're almost like saying that, you know, like, look what we did. Look how many we had. Wow, look at us, look at us, look at us. And I think, you know, to God, do you think God who has created billions of people, God who's holding the galaxies in place, do you think God's going to look down if we have 15,000 people at First Baptist and say, wow, now that's impressive. That's a crowd. No, that doesn't impress God. We pray for 10% of people so that all those people can be saved and so that then they could go out into the fields and bring people to Jesus. The whole town may, this may be like Nineveh. In the Old Testament, where the whole town got saved, not just 10%, but everybody who had reached the accountability got saved. And so God has told us to do it because death is certain and, he, and where we spend eternity matters. As Chris mentioned before that last song, this past week was, was a sad week for our family. Many of you know Joe and Janice Bloodworth. Joe headed up the building committee years ago for this worship center, the chapel, the offices, all the commons area out there just devoted his life to this church for more than two years, working on all that stuff. Never got a penny for it, volunteer work. He and his wife, Janice, have been married for, for 49 years, and they've been friends of our family for over 30 years. Back in 2008, we went from being just friends with them to being family because in one of the uh, smartest decisions my brother ever made, he asked their daughter, Jody to marry him. And in one of the most questionable decisions she ever made, she said yes to my brother. I think, how does a guy like him get a girl like her? How does this happen? Called her at a weak moment. They got married and, and uh, family's grown. It's been great. They've been like, Joe and Janice have been like family to us. About five weeks ago, Janice, 69 years of, old, of age, seemingly in great health, was home one morning, had a heart attack. Called an ambulance, taken to the emergency to the hospital, emergency room, admitted to the hospital. Things went from bad to worse. She ends up being transferred to Methodist Hospital downtown. Things went from bad to worse. And 
a week ago yesterday, she slipped out of her body and she went to be with the Lord in heaven. We had her service here on Wednesday of this week. And so it's been a sad week for our family because we all love Janice so much. Last night, I called Janice's sister, Cindy, who's seated right here on the second row with her son, Cody. I've known Cindy and Cody longer than I've known Joe and Janice. But that's another story for another day. But I was talking to Cindy last night, and I said, Cindy, I'm just thinking about you and calling to see how you're doing. And we talked for about a half hour, I guess. And she said, you know, John, I, I think maybe Jody mentioned this to you, but, but I want to tell you myself what happened. She said, last Wednesday after the service, after the at church and then the graveside service, we went, everybody went to Joe and Janice's for a meal. And she said, after, you know, during that meal in the fellowship time, she said, uh, I just was thinking about Janice, and how much I miss her, and I never thought this would happen like this. And I was thinking about heaven and how bad I want to see her again. And she said, I just was thinking, man, I, I feel pretty confident. In fact, I feel fairly confident that I'm saved. But, man, this is heaven. This is eternity. It lasts a long time, and, and I want to see my sister again. And she called Jody aside and she said, Jody, I just need you to talk to me. And she said, I just want to make 100% sure that I'm saved. So Cindy's telling me this story last night. And, and she said, you know, John, there in, in, in Joe and Janice's house, Jody and I just prayed last Wednesday afternoon. And, and I just made 100% sure that I was saved. So I said to Cindy, I said, Cindy, let me ask you this. I said, how sure were you that you were saved before you got that settled last last week, last Wednesday. She said, well, I would say I was somewhere between 85 and 90% sure, right in that range somewhere. And I said to her, I said, well, that's better than zero. You know, some people, they just know they're not saved. I mean, 85 or 90 is a lot better than that. And it's better than 50. You know, some people like, I'm 50, I'm 50, 50. Well, 85 or 90 is way better than that, but it's not as good as 100. And so last Wednesday, she moved to 100% sure that she's saved. Now, she told me that story last night, and I'm thinking about the time that we were all going to spend together this morning. I'm thinking about my sermon, He Who Wins Souls is Wise. He who goes out into the fields and brings people to Christ, that person is wise. One day, the Bible says in Daniel 12, 3, that soul winners will one day shine brightly in heaven because God will give them that special honor there. And I thought, you know, I bet they're going to be in the services on Sunday morning, in the live room, and those watching at home, a good number of people who would say, you know what? I'm about 85 or 90% sure that I'm saved. And I would say it's better than zero, it's better than 50, but it's not as good as 100. You know what my desire would be for everybody who hears this message today? Certainly that we would become soul winners. We're gonna talk more next week. How do we do that? How do we share our faith? What do we say? How do we start that conversation without coming across the wrong way? We're gonna, that's next Sunday. But as this, on this Sunday, four days before Thanksgiving, my desire for everyone who hears this message is that you would be able to wake up on Thanksgiving morning and before you ever get out of bed, while you're kind of stretching and coming to and getting those little googly things out of your eyes, whatever that is, before you say anything to anybody else on Thanksgiving Day, that you would be able to look up to this, towards heaven and say, God, I may have some problems in my life. I may have some heartache in my life. I may have some sadness in my life. 
But God, I thank you, first of all, that I'm saved. And I thank you that I know that I'm saved. Now, for some of you listening to this message today, as was true in the first service, in order for you to be able to say that on Thursday, you're going to have to do business with God on Sunday. And you're going to have to go to him. I'm doing all I can to bring you to Jesus. And I'm saying if you will come to him in prayer, asking him to forgive and save you, he will do it. And you can wake up on Thursday and every day for the rest of your life saying, God, life may not be perfect. But I'll tell you this. I'm thankful that I'm saved. And I'm thankful I know that I'm saved. Amen.